what you're about to listen to is a conversation with Jeremy Siegel, Distinguished Professor of Economics at Wharton, Jeremy Schwartz, Chief Investment Officer of WisdomTree, Dave Goodson, Head of Securitized Products at Voya Financial, and myself, where I was a guest on the Behind the Markets podcast. The first part of this discussion is where Professor Siegel shares his macro view on bonds, stocks, and the economy. And then the second and main part of this conversation is an in-depth analysis of Dave Goodson's expertise, the world of securitized products. So agency mortgage-backed securities, non-agency MBS, commercial MBS, and of course, collateralized loan obligations or CLOs. So it was a lot of fun and I'm very appreciative to Jeremy for inviting me to be part of this conversation, which starts right now. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Behind the Markets on Business Radio. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We're going to be talking with Professor Siegel, Dave Goodson from Voyage, Jack Farley from Blockworks. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO of Wisdom Tree. Professor Siegel is a senior economist for Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. We have a really interesting show on interest rates. What's happening? Are we in this higher forever environment? Professor, I know that's one of the things you're talking about these interest rates staying higher forever. What's the what's the word on the market? Forever is a long time, Jeremy. <laughs> Longer and and forever is a it, there is a difference. All right, so let let's let's summarize where we are. As I've been saying for several weeks, and now it's virtually official. Uh, the Fed is not going on November first. Absolutely, they're holding rates, and the principal reason, of course, is the the soaring. 10-year rate. We'll talk about that in a minute. Whether I, I imagine he's been very successful at getting unanimity and no dissents over the last almost two years. So the, I, I think, although some might have an inclination of moving, I think he probably will have a unanimous here. Now, December, in the middle of December, we have two more employment reports, a lot of things going on. He, as expected in his speech, on the economics club, he actually said, yeah, we're still open if things get worse, you know, because we haven't reached our goal. Absolutely expected. But, you know, clearly he had to do uh, a lot of changing of expectations, which he did not do because the market had already pretty much figured out he wasn't. So we're not going to be moving. But the 10 year is moving. Wow. Is the 10 year moving? I mean, just touching, maybe even exceeding for a few seconds, 5 percent did get headlines. I also saw uh, 30-year mortgage commitments uh, hit 803 at one point. They may be a tiny bit below eight now, but this is this is certainly news and tightening at that at at that at that long end. However, as I have been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks, no weakness yet in the real data. In fact. Initial jobless claims fell below 200,000 last week, which certainly doesn't show any weakness on the employment front. Now, will these higher real rates eventually cut or, or not? We will wait and see. Certainly, we're, I think when we had the home building, you know, moving back down, we're going to have some weakness there in the home building. But consumer spending is still good. I mean, next week we get the GDP for the third quarter and excuse me, GDP. Uh, yeah, GDP for the third quarter. It's expected to be 4.4. Some are thinking it might even be uh, in the five zone, which would be interesting. We also get the PCE deflator, and yes, that is of interest to the Fed. But 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 basically, Powell said we're not going this time, so it becomes you know less interesting. But we'll show stickiness in the rate of inflation because that shelter number 
keeps on going up in the Fed because of the long legs that are built into the shelter uh, of the BLS that we've been speaking about for months, if not years <laughs> going going forward. We're getting earnings reports. Um, I, I, I think about 20% of the S&P. I hear 78% beat, which is fairly good. Some caution on fourth quarter going forward, mainly because, you know, worry about whether interest rates are moving or not, but not anything that is serious yet. I mean, obviously by next week, I think we'll have probably 40 to 50% and we'll have a better idea about, you know, whether there's more caution or not. But, you know, basically we we, we definitely see earnings coming in at or above expectations in most instances. The higher rates are pressuring some of those long duration stocks, the tech stocks, et cetera, and, and so on. We do see a little bit of a comeback of, so to speak, value versus growth as a result of the higher rates, but it's not excessive. So, you know, they're being punished a little bit, but not anything that is serious at this particular point. The market, you know, is certainly under pressure from that. But the higher, the stronger economy is going to bring in those earnings in the fourth quarter and in 2024 still makes me very bullish for 2024 going forward. How high will these rates go? You know, technicians say 510, 520. I would be very surprised it goes above five and a quarter, honestly, because I, I still don't see inflation moving up. And despite, I mean, the Middle East is a problem. Oil is, you know, certainly a wild card over here, but other commodities are, are certainly being pressured as a result of the higher real rates and the stronger dollar that we have. So n- nothing of a big surprise except that, you know, continued pressure and technical weakness in in the bonds. And, you know, people are, <laughs> there's people jumping on the bandwagon short in those bonds. And, you know, we may, we, if we get any weak data at all, you know, you will see a big snap, snap back, I think, because everyone is expecting a continuation of that strong data. In terms of the big tech companies, you mentioned some of those stocks trading on on the, the sort of duration and sensitivity on the bond market. But you, you had Netflix, you had Tesla report and sort of move in the opposite directions. You had sort of Elon and, and, and yeah, next net net Netflix was it was a blowout. Um, Tesla was definitely challenged. I mean, it, it missed on top and bottom, and 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 Musk was very cautious. I mean, Musk has been worried. Musk had been worried for a long time that these higher interest rates are really going to impinge on the market, and uh, you know he repeated that. So you know there are there are challenges there, and margins are going down because he's cutting rates and cutting prices on 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 that. UAW, there's some tentative news that there's progress made on the General Motors strike. We'll, we'll see if that blossoms. I mean, that would be certainly a positive, but don't forget GM and Ford don't have much market value, even if we see a little bit of a jump on that. That's not really going to be this, the, you know, the big story that's, that's going to be moving the market going forward. But you still like stocks here. Your your view, stocks are. Still... I still like stocks are long. I mean, I, I you know I still like stocks. I mean, I'm not saying we 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 don't have any further downward pressure. But you know, when you're in 17 times next year's earnings, I don't see that crumbling at this juncture. And you know, the Fed by waiting this time, despite inflation not going there, said we are looking at warning signs of weakness. I think as time goes on, more and more warning signs of weakness. As time goes on, I mean, we're now just 12 months away from the presidential election and then things are going to be very, very sensitive in terms of, you know, what's going to be happening economically over this next year. 
And Powell clearly has to be sensitive to that situation. But I think he's getting pressure from the housing industry, 8% plus mortgages in a period where housing prices are pretty stable. I mean, a little bit moving up. They have moved up, but boy, you know, get a, take an 8% mortgage right now. That's fine if you knew inflation was 5 6 7%, but inflation is 2 3 you're, 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 you're really paying a very, very high price. Well, that tees up the conversation we're going to have with Dave Goodson here in just a moment. Jack Farley's joining me as a co-host today. In many ways, Jack, any questions for the professor before we let him go? Yes. Jeremy, at what point do bonds, let's say the 10-year, have to go? How high does that have to go where they become attractive as a long-term investment? With the 10-year at 2%, you, you may get some trading gains, but the long-term investment potential is is very poor at, at 2%, especially compared to, to stocks. Now that it's at 5.2%, has that changed your your calculus? Well, right now we got a real, and I look at real returns, stocks are real assets, so the 10-year tips is at two and a half. Stocks at 17, 18 times earnings are, are five and a half to six. I mean, that's a three, three and a half percent premium. Uh, that's very much in line with long-term history, actually. It's much lower than it has been in the past to be. But as as we've talked about so many times over the last several weeks, if not months, bonds are impaired as a hedge asset as a result of this inflation and fear of inflation in the future. And I don't mean that, you know, it's going to flare up again in six months or 12 months. The question, you're buying a 10, 20, 30-year bond, whatever you're going to buy, is there going to be another episode like this in the future with deficits, et cetera, and so on? That fear is much higher than it was pre-pandemic where there was no inflation for 40 years and people use it as as a hedge for geopolitical and financial risk. And now I've got another risk where bonds do terribly. It's not as good a hedge asset. I've got to be paid for it. Rates go up as far as that's concerned. So it's still a decided edge for, for stocks over bonds and stocks are the asset to be in as well as real estate if inflation is something that you fear in the future. Professor, we're going to give you say goodbye. Thanks very much for joining us for some comments to start the show. Thank you. We'll talk next Thank week. You, professor. We're going to be now turning the conversation over to Dave Goodson, who's a portfolio manager for Wisdom Tree. Actually, we we voice sub advises some of our ETFs, and Dave is the P portfolio manager on our mortgage plus fund. So just full disclosure on that. But Dave, you know, we talked a little bit on you heard the professor talk about mortgages. You see where we are in the bond market. I sort of equipped it's sort of higher forever. What do you see happening in the bond market? What's the state of the bond market in your view? Boy, another thing he said that resonated with me is that bonds as a hedge for equity risk and credit risk are impaired right now. I feel that brunt from almost a, like an emotional standpoint. The sentiment in our market might be another way to say it went from being almost ebullient. If you think back to where we were just a few short months ago in July, when we were hit carving up New Year to date highs in equities, there was people competing for risk in almost ever, every sector of, of fixed income markets. And now you fast forward to where we are today and you know, just this rate backdrop and what it's done to our total returns in our client portfolios. You know, it, we're, we're at a point now where we thought that redemption risk associated with drawdowns and negative total returns from 22 was safely behind us. Now that's we're staring that in its face again. So it's really it's really hit sentiment hard. And that's that's made the risk taking 
willingness, you know, less, I think, bottom line, while as strong as the economic growth data in the U.S. anyway has been, uh, Professor highlighted that, you would think they'd be very supportive for risk taking. And just with this rate backdrop, it's really taken the shine off of it. It really has. Now, the mortgage market has a lot of unique things, and you're buying mortgages. When you think about the, that that segment of the fixed income universe, talk a little bit about what you see in spreads today, how they're compared to normal. I mean, our asset allocation team and model portfolios added more to mortgages than we saw an opportunity. We saw historically widespreads in our view. Talk it from your perspective what you're seeing in the market uh, today. That's the right play, the way you guys have, have guided the portfolios. I would I would agree with that. However, it, it feels still, you know, in markets right now, as I described, given that rate backdrop, quite quite negative. And the number one sector standpoint, from a sector standpoint, the number one place where we see that uh, weakness and sentiment manifesting is on the agency-backed portion of mortgage markets, the largest portion of securitized markets. Nine trillion or so in, in outstandings. Traditionally, the most second most liquid universe, fixed income universe in the in the markets behind treasuries. It's really taking this rate move uh, on the chin, and where that's left spreads, and probably what informs to some degree the the asset alloc- the positive asset allocation moves that you've made into the space, is this historic cheapness, Jeremy. I mean, we are in the last five years, we have not seen this the space trade this cheaply in over 99% of occurrences. And that's one way that's, and I could state that cheapness from a number of perspectives. I could compare that to, you know, other risk markets on say the corporate credit side. And you're similarly in that 99th percentile of cheapness for agency markets. So it is wearing this rate move clearly on the face. Now here's the- So what's the spread like there? Like the give, us, give us a number of what is oh, the, sure. so cheapness of 99% much more than normal. But what is the actual numbers for where the yields are when we think about 5% 10-year? What is What do you see on some of these bonds? Sure. On the agency side, and there's two different regimes under which we quote rates. One would just be nominally. So just what would be that difference between the yield and then the, say the, the, the 10-year right now? And that premium you get on a nominal basis is approaching 200 basis points, Jeremy. So that's quite extreme, and typically that nominal spread is going to be about half that. Now, when you when you when you kind of better quality control or adjust that that nominal spread to something that takes into account more of the risk that's inherent in owning a, a prepayable loan obligation like a mortgage, we all have the option to, to to repay at any point in time without cost. You can option adjust it. So you you. you and not to get too esoteric, but um, happy to do it if you like. Yeah. Uh, but if you take into account that option, then this, you can normalize and say, well, what does the spread look like after you take that into account? And spreads are still look to us very attractive, approaching 80 for the current coupon. So where we are today in today's mortgage markets, those on the run securities are going to issue today have option adjusted spreads that pay you 80 basis points north of treasuries. And typically that's going to be also about half of where it's registering today. So we are in ex- kind of extreme territory, relative value perspective. But thanks, thanks, David. Yeah. Uh, good, good, good to be here with. I, I just, so for the audience who are not as familiar, I just want to say, yeah, that agency mortgage-backed securities are, you know, have a, in some cases, an implicit guarantee of the government. So with people, people who are mortgage-backed securities, it's a totally different world than 
the private label stuff from from you know that caused the great great financial crisis. And I just want to you know I'll get into the bond math in in a second, but I want to ask you about the reason why agency mortgage-backed securities are so cheap right now. And I is it is it is it accurate to say that if everyone in the mortgage-backed market like was like you, in other words, an active investor who is making valuation decisions, maybe mortgage-backed securities wouldn't have been so overpriced two years ago and so underpriced mm-hmm. now. But the reality is that the marginal investor in mortgage-backed securities is banks, and they have to deploy it in securities when they get excess cash. And now banks are run, you know, running out of deposit, deposits are going down, so they just don't have the money to, to allocate to this asset class. So, so you know, they, they, banks bought them when they were overpriced, and now they're, in some cases, selling them or not buying them when they're underpriced. That dynamic is so real. And, and, and even just pointing to the technical side of the market. So I've, I think I started when uh, Jeremy asked the question, you know, about what we're seeing in mortgage space, about the fundamental side and kind of how we got here via rate fall. But that technical side has become so very important and so much more of a driver as we enter this kind of uncharted territory of cheapness. Uh, you, you know, where are the sources of support? Why aren't they there? And, and you hit on a key constituent typically in the market being banks, less economically sensitive, you know, as you said, you know, you know, uh, more willing and able to buy at tighter levels for various uh, reasons, Ca- capital efficiency being one of them at certain points in time. But I'd also mention, you, you didn't mention this one, I'm sure it's in your thinking, the Fed. The Fed was a major buyer via the, when they were in their quantitative easing regime mortgages as well, perhaps the biggest buyer in markets, just hoovering in these low coupon securities back in the 2021 timeframe, and they're nowhere. In, in fact, they're in reverse. And, and as everybody knows, I presume, in the quantitative tightening regime. So your, your, your two most economically insensitive or valuation insensitive buyers are nowhere to be found when the market's at its cheapest. Uh, I think that that technical side is, is exacerbated conditions and allows us to get to these extreme levels that we find ourselves at today. And when you talk about uh, option adjusted spread, that sort of prices in a level of implied volatility for, for rates. So you know, if we look at a chart of option adjusted spread in 2020, it was a po- very small but positive number in terms of basis points. But with with realized volatility, it actually turned out to be be negative, right? So so how do you view the if, if 80 basis points, I think you said for option adjusted spread right now, that sounds cheap, you say, on a historical level. Is it if rate volatility turns out to be muted and you know there's not more 500 basis points of, of hikes and cuts, is it even more cheap? Yes, that, uh, well, it, certainly. And But what will happen is these economically sensitive buyers we talked about, i.e. money managers, are going to come in and buy that risk. That will happen. Uh, and it will happen in size. It may be to the detriment of other asset classes, but it will happen. I presume that's what's in informing the asset allocation changes to go overweight this sector is anticipation of that. So that that's, I think, if, if you at least believe in efficient markets, uh, that is what we would expect. That's what we would indeed position for. So yeah, that cheapness would not exist and it would, it would, it would evaporate pretty quickly uh, into a, uh, a money manager's portfolio. One of Jack's and my friends that I were talking offline about some of the opportunities or where 
some of the reasons why some of these agency bonds are, are trading at these. And it, it, there was some interesting dynamics with credit default swaps and people, how much the trade you could buy if you package like an agency bond and a credit default swap and, with the, and the cost to hedge against the default and just the, the actual spread. And they were tying it to lack of confidence in government support, that the politics that we have sort of dysfunction in Washington is leading to questions about whether we're really going to support these agency bonds in some ways. I, I think that's my read of the conversation that I had. Do you think it all has to do well, with government dysfunction in Washington? Boy, that's great radio. <laughs> to, to give that to give that that take credence. I I would tell you uh, I believe a portion of this rate fall that we've seen is certain is is certainly attributable to that. And, and it's, it, heck, it manifested in a downgrade of our country's credit rating in July. You know, so there's, and that, in theory anyway, should equate to more premium and in, in, in the cost of our country to borrow. So I think that part's real. And to the extent that drives rate fall, and that, we, we, we see that clearly, as I say, that space is wearing the rate ball. I think that may be where it manifests, <clears throat> but in terms of it ultimately cutting towards the government's willingness to continue to sponsor the GSEs and their missions, I think we're a long way from that being close to reality, at least given current regimes. We're, we're very familiar with some of the key actors at the FHFA, the regulator, and I think nothing could be further from their agenda uh, in terms of willingness to support the GSEs as an example, but from a more larger perspective on rate vol and how that comes into the markets, I think certainly you could, you could some of that, there's some credence there, Jeremy. Interesting. And so I, I know a lot of uh, the, the work you do is in the agency market. Tell us about the non-agency MBS, so RMBS, CMBS, residential and, and commercial, as well as the collateralized loan obligation market. And needless to say, these are, are not guaranteed by the government. So they do have credit risk. What are, what have been sort of the risks and opportunities this year, and, and what do you see there going forward? Yeah, this is a long answer, so don't be bashful about uh, uh, stepping in and breaking, breaking up my uh, monologue here. But uh, there is some interesting stuff that we've definitely seen. Maybe I could start just first sticking with the resi, residential mortgage piece of the equation, because that's what we've been focused on to a large degree so far. On the non-agency side, where again, as you accurately point out, you do have credit risk there, so it's a different paradigm. It's not just all about rates. It certainly has a meaningful, plays a meaningful part rates do in terms of the non-agency bonds valuation, but credit risk you have to take into account. And there, what we've seen is almost like this whole resilience piece that we've seen from the economy with around economic growth and, and, and the consumer being continued to consume. That Just that general dynamic of strength we continue to see that in market sponsorship of credit risk for residential mortgages. And I think that's warranted. We understand that. That's We don't view that as irrational by any stretch. And when you look at metrics around uh, active mortgages that are out in the U.S. housing market today, I mean, it's pretty uh, compelling as to why folks are going to, generally speaking, and should be able to continue to pay their mortgage uh, over 90% have mortgage rates inside of 4%. So while we, you know, hem and haw about 8% mortgage rates, rightfully so, because it does constrict new housing activity, no doubt about it from a macro perspective, as it relates to the risks we can take in that market, you know, we are happy to 
as long as the spread compensation is there, we're happy to to take the risk that a borrower will make a, a monthly payment on it with a 4% mortgage, especially when that would tell you they probably had that mortgage back in 2020 or prior, maybe 21, 21 or prior, let's say, and they've been able to enjoy major appreciation on their home, a little bit of get back in the second end of 22, but it certainly didn't, it was not enough to erase the gains they've got. So they've been able, they have, now they have home equity to protect in addition to an affordable mortgage. That sets up for a nice outcome under a really wide range of scenarios in our estimation. And we buy that. We like that risk in our market. So the market's been very resilient. We've seen continued sponsorship, insurance community, money managers uh, continue to like to take that risk, irrespective almost of the volatility we've seen in rates and, and agency markets. So very different, different dynamic there. It's kind of interesting. Moving to the other side of the mortgage equation, you mentioned commercial real estate, and it's mm-hmm. very, very different, perhaps needless to say. That part of the market's in a different part of its cycle, trying to find a trough for valuations, trying to find a trough for activity. It is, it's, it's still in a, a very difficult part of its cycle as opposed to the housing and mortgage credit markets where we, we, we paint things in a, almost an expansionary phase. And on the earlier side of its cycle, commercial real estate's in the, in the very latest stages of its and looking to find its trough to, to work its way out. Now, it's not all bad. Okay, let's be clear about that. But the market has not necessarily been efficient in understanding that it's not all bad. Where we view the, the punctuated problems, the most kind of toxic parts of that market to be, and it's probably won't surprise our listeners, is on the office side from a property type perspective. That's the key to mention that property type, not location. It usually is location, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Not right now. It's it's property type and office is what's where we're seeing that 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 toxicity. And, and, and when people say commercial real estate is, you know, one of the worst performing parts of the economy, it's tied to that in our estimation. And now that we've been in this correction phase for commercial real estate for now, I think I go back to August. This is we're several quarters into this. We've got more time. We've got more information. And it's increasingly clear to us that it is a property type problem uh, related and driven by office. So we look at things like multifamily risk, industrial risk. Less so now, but certainly in the last couple of quarters, hotel risk, uh, retail risk, I would say, has been even a surprisingly strong part of the property type story. And in all those instances, we're seeing great opportunities because in crises, the markets lose their efficiency and people fear starts to take over. And you see, mm-hmm. you know, unappropriate risk. So that's that's been the dynamic in CMBS again, a market trying to find its trough, but with great opportunities, if you can avoid where the real problems are, i.e. Being, being in office. That's the real estate side. Should I proceed with CLO? Well, you mentioned that as well. Well, well let's talk about you just the spreads in some of those and what what what, yeah. what what makes it, you know, where they are today. You know, you're actually not buying a just broad index. You're trying to pick where you want to be. How are you evaluating what yes. some of those yields that you're finding attractive and how you're trying to manage the risks around things that might, you know, lose a lot of value? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I'll, I'll get precise, but let me emphasize to you guys and the listeners yields are attractive everywhere with this rate sell-off it's also continued to promote a spread premium talking about some of the positive dynamics that should influence on the resi side for example residential side for example tighter spreads but they still are trading on the historically cheap side of historical occurrences again this rate ball is promoted just continued cheapness so yields on income are available and securitized everywhere it is easy this is going to I hate to say these things, but it's true. And this is the way I feel. It takes seven to eight percent and take very appropriate risk. 
in fixed income right now. That's been the upside, upshot of this rate volatility. We can make meaningful amounts of money taking relatively little risk than say where we were in 2021 or, or many of the histor historical occurrences prior. I feel very good about that statement. So where that, what equates to from a spread perspective for AAA rated risk, which the government's not even rated AAA anymore, AAA rated risk in our space, 200 basis points of credit spread on top of these elevated yields, get you that, that seven to 8% annualized rate. So even if we just stabilize from where we are today, we don't get any kind of bounce back from these historically wide levels and, and cheapness and spreads, that carry will earn you, you know, pretty meaningful amounts of total return on a sustained basis. So I, we think we like to take what the market gives us and, and, and maximize return for level of risk. That's, I think any money manager would, would live by that. And we certainly do. And that's what the market's giving us right now. So those kinds of opportunities are in abundance in those mortgage sectors. Jeremy and Jack, I know those are, that's kind of a generic statement, but that's what the market's allowing me to make to you right now. You can be at the AAA level, a couple hundred basis points in credit spread on top of 5% yields. Bottom line, car launch across the space. We're talking with Dave Goodson, who's sort of head of securitized portfolio manager at Voya. They sub-advise some of our funds, include this mortgage plus bond fund. We've got Jack Farley from BlockWorks, host of the Forward Guidance podcast, here co-hosting with me today, interested in this space. Dave, so you mentioned triple A's, you get a few hundred basis points. Where's the riskiest part of the market that you're saying, oh, this is, there's an even further spread going to this risky segment of, of but what you think the risk reward is really worth that. I mean, you're focused on triple A. We can talk a little bit what's the downside of triple A, but, but give me the other side. What's the riskiest segment of the market that you're focused on? Where, and, and to be clear, you want to know where we would, we would advocate taking Take the risk. more risk to yeah. earn more good return. Yeah. Because there's parts where we think there's you can you can get paid more, but there's it's probably mispriced. There's probably some volatility coming. We can talk well, about that as well. Yes. Okay. But but on the but on the for the parts of the market where we think you can get paid more risk to take still very attractive or you can yeah and still earn very attractive return and this risk will be a better price more efficiently over time. If you if you talk about the parts of the capital structure I was just highlighting, so very high AAA rated parts, senior bonds as we would say, in our market. If you were to sacrifice some of that structural protection, so when we buy AAA, we have insulation because there's bonds that have lower access to those positive cash flows that get us repaid. They would be subordinated to the senior bonds. If you were willing to sacrifice some of that protection to take more credit risk, then you can earn more return. And as I painted the picture earlier from a fundamental perspective, we view housing markets as safely in the early part of its cycle, and it will perform under a wide range of scenarios. That probably tells you I'd be willing to take more just credit risk in residential housing markets, especially in some of those season bonds where the underlying borrowers have had been in their home for a period of time, so a number of years, and they've experienced that great growth in the value of their homes. They're gonna, we know they're going to act to protect that equity, and even if they don't, and unfortunately, they would have to move to a different property. The trust that's left with that home is going to be in a very advantageous position to be able to repay that debt. The spreads that are available in the subordinates linked to that very high quality risk are will, will be in excess of 400 and 500 basis points. You can approach double digit income for bonds that still actually would even in that instance have an investment grade rating. And so you're feeling like these are like almost in some instances equity like returns and getting approaching double digits. Now you have to, again, lose some priority in those cash flows to take more risk. But again, 
in a market we view to be relatively early cycle, i.e. the housing market. And you can also identify those other very salient points about the borrower's strength. That's a place to be advocate taking deeper risks, shed some of that 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 security in a in a portfolio that can be a little more tolerant, a little bit more volatility. That would be a great place to take risk. I would highlight that right off the bat. Thank you. And then what what about the part where you think there's a a lot more risk that you're not being compensated for? What listeners may predict, uh, and you may as might predict, I'd start with uh, CNBS, but that's not the case. In CBS, we think it's priced already for for risk. It's appropriately priced, and then. Many instances, it's sloppily priced. In other words, there's some inefficiency in how and then the risk premiums that are there. So where we look is a market that's done really, really well, yet we have always had some misgivings about the underlying leverage and the collateral that is going to repay us. And that leads us to CLOs. I didn't have a chance to address that earlier, asking Jack about that part of the of the of the market that bears credit risk. That certainly is one of them. This is the part of the securitized markets that also ties away. all the sectors we've talked about so far primarily have been related to Main Street, you know, real estate, commercial real estate and, and housing. Describe what a CLO, CLO is for for, for our listeners, just because it's a lot of acronyms. We talk about CMBS, RMBS, make sure for, for people just what describe a CLO and then and then what the risks are that you're avoiding. Absolutely. So uh, CLO stands for collateralized loan obligation. And that loan, in this instance, ties to a loan made to a corporation. Typically, it's not typically, in almost all instances, it's to a high yield borrower. So a borrower that's got a credit rating below investment grade. But for whatever reason, they've elected to go to the loan market rather than the bond market. So you have the high yield bond market that I would imagine is fairly widely followed by most listeners out there. And then you've got the loan market, maybe less followed. And the loan market that tends to trade on the private side and, and has it always bears a floating, not always, but generally bears a floating rate of interest as well. So these borrowers are uh, bearing every rate increase by the Fed since, you know, since they began the regime in 2022. So their their burden from an interest cost perspective is going higher. Their credit worthiness is, from that perspective anyway, inherently reducing as we as as financial conditions become more difficult because of their they're wearing this floating rate burden and so that that that, that gets our antenna off and start gets us start to be concerned from an underlying collateral perspective however what's been happening on the on the debt side of clos of collateralized loan obligations where where we can take risk if we so choose is borrowers have also enjoyed conversely unlike the, the underlying borrowers who repay these debts the, the investors have enjoyed being able to book more income from the Fed's rate hiking regime and enjoyed the fact that they, because of the floating rate, they don't have to worry about duration risk. So CLOs have done progressively well into this rate move over the course of the summer and into the fall, while the underlying loan market has continued to, we believe, post more signs to be worried about. And that's where we see distortion in price. That's where we see, see relative richness. I've talked about cheapness being everywhere uh, in our space and abundant opportunities in CLOs. We think that it's more prudent to be defensively postured there and positioned for more, more volatility rather than less. Interesting. Now, is it easy? So it's, it, yeah. in the small cap space, you know, what, I'm actually working on a piece that shows just the, the, the cost of borrowings in large caps versus small caps. Small caps have 
particularly lagged. You know, obviously the Magnificent Seven is really doing everything else. People talk about the S and P four ninety three versus the S and P seven, where you just have these seven stocks driving all of the S and P's returns. But there is something to the borrowing costs rising, and I think a lot of them have this loan borrowing compared to large caps that are tapping the capital markets for debt. When you're looking at that market, is is it public companies, is it private companies who are getting the loans when you're trying to go through these CLOs? How are you deciding if there's a place you want to buy CLOs, that you have any of them in the portfolio? How are you doing that diligence to say which, which segment you want or any comments on that? Sure. Who's taking these loans out? We have good transparency and into the underlying borrowers, who they are. Um, they're not, you know, large, high-profile public companies by and large, but we have dedicated teams of, you know, 30 plus researchers whose job it is to, to follow these management teams, just like you would a public company on the equity side. That's what they do. This market's that powerful, commands that level of resource. We need to have a desk staff to do that, to make money for our client base and make prudent uh, loans. And so we, we can leverage that transparency that those researchers provide us to help give us reads into, into how to value our CLOs. And, and that's ultimately how we make these determinations. And yeah, we are definitely seeing signs of stress. It's not calamitous. It's not systemic to get our, you know, hopefully put people's worries at ease for this part of the market. To put things in context, we've seen defaults in the loan universe come into the year at normally low levels, less than 1% default rates. And now they're, they're, they're materially higher in a mine, but still two-ish percent. That's what we're seeing registered in, in, in the loan universe. So imminently, you know, that's that's still below historical levels, but the concern is, again, it's moving higher. And you would expect it to do so in a world where we're seeing the stress and this uncertainty that we think primarily emanates from the rising rate environment. That's where the, the concern comes from. And that's, that's where we think the market's been slow in the case of CLOs to better price that risk. But yeah, the transparency is there. We can, we can see this unfolding in front of us. So the transparency into who owes what, what sort of companies, that's there. Talk to us a little bit about the price transparency and how often these loans go on sale or these, these tranches go on sale. And also I should say, you know, just looking at sort of a basket of CLOs and index, the amount that, you know, the CLO index goes up every day. It's every time interest rates goes up, it goes up a little day. And there's, there's such little volatility I've, I've noticed. It's yeah. pretty much a, a straight line. Would you say that this sort of you know, very calmness in the in the CLO market as defaults rise, even though they're not rising, they're rising from a very low level, would you would a word like complacency be approach be applicable? Complacency is tough because just given how much we consternate over taking uh, risk at the single A level in that space, I don't I, I extrapolate that I don't think there's complacency. I do think that there is an element of of you know, you're always trying to prioritize your risks and the scenarios you think that are potentially could be most relevant. Nobody has the crystal ball to know exactly what's going to occur going forward. And and I, I just think people are more content to avoid the duration risk that's so front and center, so clear and obvious, even if it means, hey, I'm going to have to take more corporate credit risk in the loan market. The market's been willing to make that trade effectively. So I, I, I believe that's the dynamic that's been going on. Now, to the extent that that's more credit risk oriented concerns start to come to light, if we were to get a more of a kind of a flattening off in rates, maybe the, the eye starts to turn back to that risk. And that's where we see potential volatility coming through. Now, you, the beginning part of your 
of your question was interesting as well, just to highlight this for, for our listeners. I don't think that the underlying valuation of the loans that will repay us is necessarily the strongest part of a CLO investor's thesis. Certainly in periods of, of when the markets become more choppy, more volatile, the, 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 the transparency of where an actual loan would trade in the market is going to be less. And when you factor in how much more of a role private credit players are playing in the market, I think that also sort of muddies the water and makes things a little bit more cloudy from that perspective as well. So that's not the strongest piece of the thesis for CLO investors, I would say, overall. If they're to the champion for you, why we want to take risks there, they probably wouldn't lead with that would be my, would be my guess. Yeah, and talk to us about who are the loans. So how much of it are loans originated by banks and then are sold by banks, sort of like a buy, originate and sell model? How much of them are, are, are syndications? How much of them are funding buyout deals or you know, leverage loans? And then also talk to us about this private credit CLOs where, you know, I think CLOs with a back test, I've, this is what I've heard, correct me if I'm wrong, when the asset class was very small, CLOs did quite well in 2008 relative to other securitized products. And that's, I'm sure, sure referenced a lot, but the asset class has grown so much since then. And now private credit loans, are, is it true they're being packaged into CLOs? And where is the price transparency there? Whereas private credit is, I mean, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah, a lot bundled into that, uh, into that question. Uh, speaks to the evolution of that market. It's been extreme. Evolution has been, and I think for the most part, it's been a good evolution. I don't want to sour the 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 momentum that space has been able to enjoy from a growth standpoint, and it's played a meaningful role in financing, you know, it's big growing part of corporate uh, America. So it's played a good role overall. What I'm highlighting for you is just maybe a, a difference in where valuations and risks should be be, a, be more efficiently priced, in my mind, and why. The, I think of all the uh, kind of segments and the dynamics you talked about around who are these borrowers and you know what percentage syndicated and you know what do they finance from a from a use of proceeds perspective or the acquisitions we haven't seen too much difference in those drivers so it's banks syndicating these loans into the broadly syndicated loan market that's the vast majority of the trillion dollars or so in C in and now saying clos that's where they're participating many instances their buyouts some instances are just refinances I'd say that's a meaningful portion of the universe. So not too much to highlight there in terms of different dynamics, but it is very different. And this is a sea change in our market. And it's not just occurring in, in, in corporate credit, it's occurring in increasingly also forms of consumer credit as well on the securitization side. And that is private lenders, private market participants coming in with you know what's been an exceptionally strong period of fundraising for those products. We're seeing it manifest in securitized markets now, for sure. So that it used to be known as middle market lending, if you recall those days. Mm -hmm. This year, it's changed, been rebranded as private credit CLOs. This has been one of the larger pockets of growth in securitized issuance this year has been that market on the back of this big move in, in, in private credit lending. And there, yeah, I think transparency is something we've struggled with. Not been a participant in, that, in, the, in the growth of that market so far, in part because of that transparency. I do think it's going to increase as this market gets bigger and more prolific and the manager universe grows. Uh, but for now, it's still, I think it's, it's still in the relatively early innings as a, as a market. Does that help? help kind of that that helps a lot. Like? And so interesting middle market lending rebranded as private credit CLOs. I might also the illiquidity of the asset class, you, you know, it's quite hard to trade. That's kind of re, been rebranded as it, it's low volatility because it was at a hundred dollars <laughs> a year ago and now it's a hundred dollars now. 
Jeremy, what what are, what are your final thoughts here? You know, Dave, we had you on right after the banking crisis, and you were starting to think about how the government was going to start selling off some of the bank portfolios. Give us an update on the what you saw as the banking opportunities, things to pick up, things on the cheap, where they are, where you were on evaluating those, and then just your, the current state of the banking dynamics, and, and maybe I have a few questions on that. But what, what what did you see about the sales of assets from the banks? Boy, I hate this term, but I think it applies here. The nothing burger. It was a nothing burger. It was, it was, it was such a. It was actually a source of, in the sense that there's there was a little bit of a of meat on the sandwich. It, it did help keep volatility low, as we got the initial stage of the bank crisis. You know, there was the hysteria that we had the regulator response, which which helped quell volatility, and then the actual sale process can allowed that that lower volatility environment to prevail, ultimately. Because the actual, there's always the stock argument. That's probably what I was concerned about when we spoke back in May and all this daunting amount of supply, 80 plus billion had to clear a market that was just coming off of a very volatile stretch. But then the flow piece of it, so there's the stock piece and then the flow piece of it ended up being, that was the nothing burger. That was where, you know, every list that came out, the markets tended to trade tighter than before. In retrospect, what was happening was money managers that had been shut out of the low coupon story from 2021 because the Fed was buying everything. They were very underweight their benchmark. They were coming in and using this, this, these, these sales as an opportunity to cover those underweights, and they did. And it resulted in strong execution. We're now almost entirely done, if not, if not entirely done. We're just down to a, you know, a few nubs of, of EMOs or structured forms of agency resi risk. We're almost done with it now. Happy to report, circle back. Glad you asked that because it was, I think, in, in, in overall, it was a good story for securitized market, even if it didn't result in some tremendous trade that perhaps some were, were angling for. Now, now, you mentioned CMBS as commercial mortgage-backed real estate was one of those places you thought was being priced well. This is also one of those places that could be a risk for banks if, if it does deteriorate. But t- t- tell us a little bit more detail on what you think the yield opportunities are there and, and, and why that is now just an overpriced situation that you think has been attractive. Yeah. Yeah. So again, in markets that are, that appear to be going through a, you know, kind of a, a real turn in their cycle, you can see fear creep into market behavior in a market behavior. And that's what we've seen in CMBS. And I would say to a degree, in other markets that have exposure to commercial real estate, you can see what the regional banks are priced with a high degree of, of cheapness. Uh, on the equity side, you're more of an expert there, but I presume you'd agree. And and it's against a function of where we are in the cycle. It's it's a it's a sector that's trying to find its trough uh, at this point. So extremely late cycle. Now in those type markets, that's where you will find the most extreme opportunities, and 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 that's ultimately where we're at. So we believe double digit returns are the norm over the next two years. For that space, if you can take the most take the right risks, and that's away from office, it's away from central business district office, and it's in other property types like multifamily, retail, industrial. Been fascinating. We got we've got about two three minutes left. Any areas of your market that we haven't covered that you think that just sort of represents something that you think are are interesting, or or how you would phrase when people hear this asset back market? How should they be thinking about sizing it in, in portfolios? Yeah, two, two, yeah, I'll answer the question in two parts. Great question. Great thing to close on. Uh, one place we didn't really nail down, I don't feel, was the asset-backed securities market. You answered there at the end. So the parts of the market that aren't secured by a mortgage, we prefer to play from the consumer side. 
and we still like attaching to the U.S. consumer, trying to avoid the lower income cohorts, especially loans that were pools that were or even maybe the back end of 21, that's where we see some acute risk forming and stress forming. But outside of that, we still believe in the consumer prime uh, season loan pools. Easy to make, as I said earlier, 78% in those deals. And those will also perform in a very wide range of scenarios. So that's a place I think would be a great way to allocate risk in a portfolio into a potentially more choppy environment that we find ourselves in now. So I, I'd, I'd probably close with that as, as kind of a, a key recognition, sizing it. As a percentage of your fixed income portfolio, it is definitively fixed income. So make it considered part of that. You know, we, I think at, at a minimum, thinking of it as a five to ten percent allocation at a minimum is a great place to have a toehold for securitized new markets. It will add to your, it will improve your sharp ratio. Asset allocators out there. Well, very good, Jack. I know I I asked you to join. I saw you tweeting about mortgages and other things, and I was like, I've got somebody you should talk to. And so I I appreciate you joining here, sort of co-host capacity on SiriusXM. Any closing 30 seconds of thoughts uh, from you? Well, I I really appreciate uh, the invite, Jeremy. I just want to know on, on the duration front, Dave, what what are your views? You know, so the, those ultra long 30 year, 100 year bonds that you know, perhaps come from Europe with ultra interest sensitive. You, you've given us a, a, a very in-depth view of, of your credit view, but on the duration front, I mean, what's, what's your view? We're going to run out of time on that one. You're going to have to do that on a future show. We've been talking with Dave Goodson from Voyage, Jack Farley from Blockworks. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Dion on the soundboard. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great one. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.